Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a somatic educator, executive coach, and transpersonal guide, and I'm your host. Just a brief update, I want to do a shout out to my friend Jan Winhall. She has a new book available for pre-order entitled Treating Trauma and Addiction with Felt Sense Polyvagal Model, a Bottom-Up Approach. I will include a link in the show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated different somatic approaches into his work, including rolfing. You can learn more about Cosper's work at www.cosperscafidi, that's C-O-S-P-E-R-S-C-A-F-I-D-I.com. And he is an amazing body worker. He happens to be my own. And I'm very excited to have our guest today, Antara Ali. He is the author of two books, Advancing Timothy Leary's Eight Circuit Brain Model, called Angel Tech, published in 1985, and The Eight Circuit Brain, Navigational Strategies for the Energetic Body, published in 2009. His Eight Circuit work has been endorsed by Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson. Over the past 15 years, Antero has taught an annual interactive online course exploring the practical applications of the Eight Circuit model. He resides in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Sylvie Ali, who's also a singer. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Uh, very excited to have this conversation with you, and I'm very much appreciative of you willing to come on the podcast. Um, as we spoke a little bit offline, I was uh, brought the eight circuit model was brought to my attention in the late 90s when I was doing all my graduate work in transpersonal psychology. Um, so I had the opportunity to read Larry's work, had the opportunity to read Robert Anton Wilson's work. And thanks to my friend uh, Jamie Wheel, he brought the model back to my attention probably three or four months ago. And as a result of kind of digging back into it, I was thrilled to discover your work which is just as old as, you know, kind of Larry's and, and uh, Robert Anton Wilson's. But, like, you've done an amazing job of kind of updating the model and then adding a lot of practices to it. But before we jump into the model per se and your work kind of promoting it and helping people better understand it, I'd love to hear more about your story, how you got into this space in general, and then how you discovered and started working through the Eight Circuit model in particular. Okay, um, I'm going to give you the kind of the short story. That's a long, twisted tale. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> back in 1979, um, I was reading um, Bob Wilson's book *Cosmic Trigger*, and uh, this book is a he, he calls it his neurological autobiography, and he wrote it a couple of years um, after a tragic. Uh, occurrence in his life when his daughter was randomly murdered. And I was genuinely touched by uh, how he um, described and lived through his responses to this tragedy um, that I think for, I don't know if it would be for a lesser person or a person of lesser imagination and will, would have completely, I think, destroyed that person for the rest of their life to have to live with um, the knowledge and memory of, of, of such a, a horrible event. But somehow he had this um, 
intelligence for now what I'm going to say here, I'm hoping it's not going to sound too flippant, but it's the only way I can describe it of converting the tragic into magic. And this was so compelling to me, even though I didn't understand it at the time, I had not really known um, any anything really that I would call tragic. I was like maybe 25, 26 years old. But there was one section in Cosmic Trigger that he dedicated to the eight-circuit brain system that he borrowed from his friend Timothy Leary and somehow put it into the context of the story that he was writing about his life. Well, his life story is really amazing, but there was something about the eight-circuit model that immediately stood out to me um, as a, a significant contribution and I became kind of obsessed with it, but felt that um, there was something lacking in the application because I wanted to experience firsthand, um, you know, what these eight circuits represented because it is a symbolic system. It's not a biological system like the um, the Hindu chakra system, for example, that is based in the um, uh, the biological endocrine system of the body, of the glandular system. Um, the eight circuit brain is a symbolic system. It's not biological. It's, 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 it represents eight uh, functions of intelligence and also eight um, states of consciousness, perhaps, that are attached to those. Anyway, um, my history up to that point had been primarily uh, as a performer, director and teacher of theater, especially physical theater. So I was already uh, deeply immersed in uh, somatic creative expression. And I started experimenting with coming up with exercises, uh, theater games at first that turned into rituals, that turned into meditations, to see if I could trigger the direct experience of the states of consciousness and the functions of intelligence that the eight circuits represented. And I got a little bit of success in the beginning processes of that to encourage me to keep going. And I, then I finally wrote a kind of initial manuscript uh, that took, oh, oh, maybe three years. And I presented it to, um, Bob at the time, there's a whole section of the story I'm leaving out is how I met Bob, which, you know, people can look into my, mm -hmm. my, my book, The Eighth Circuit Brain goes, you know, goes into that. Um, and he agreed to read the manuscript. And he says, if I, you know, if I can get behind it, I'll write you a preface. And fortunately, he was able to get behind it. He wrote the preface. And that allowed um, me to step into the circle of publication because he was already a well-known published author. And with his preface, it kind of sanctioned uh, a direction um, in my life as, as a published author. Um, and then uh, about 25 years later, after much experimentation with the model, I realized that I had advanced it far beyond the first book, which was called Angel Tech. And I had to write uh, I felt compelled to write uh, the advanced, um, the advancement of that process in a new book, uh, even though I didn't want to. You know, writing, writing books. I've written like 
eight or nine books. I can't keep them keep up with it. But writing books has been the most difficult thing I know how to do, and I never want to do it when you know when 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 the compulsion to write a book comes up. It's it's always I'm kind of kicking, screaming, and crying going through it. And but this book I felt I needed to write not for me, but for um, a younger generation that was perhaps in need of discovering some kind of um, map or grid to start helping them make sense of the escalating uncertainties uh, that we're all experiencing, even even more amplified now during the COVID era. Um, and it's these escalating uncertainties that as a theater artist and also as a filmmaker now that I've come to um, uh, interpret as a creative state. So I, to me, a state of uncertainty is uh, synonymous with a creative state. Um, and so my bias in writing, you know, the Eighth Circuit Brain and pretty much everything I do um, is is really, um, you know, uh, based in um, the experience of uncertainty as a creative state. Let's, if you don't mind, I'd love to go back to you in your, in your early to mid-20s and tell me about the, tell me about who you were showing up that you thought you could write a book and get Robert Anton Wilson to support it. Because I think that's, you know, pretty, there's a lot of confidence that you must have had, at least seemingly, to be able to do so, which is awesome. And a, um, as an exemplar for other people. I think as a young man, I had um, a kind of bogus confidence um, hmm. that was supported uh, by an experience that I had throughout my 20s of um, making an art out of poverty. Um, I never had a nine to five job uh, because I was um, uh, obsessed with writing works for theater that I would then uh, audition actors for and end up producing and directing these experimental theater productions, which I did all throughout you know, my 20s. And that built its own kind of confidence, you know, this capacity for just um, uh, coming up with a dream and then finding a way to magnetize others to participate in the dream that then became their dream as well. And so I became this person building confidence for the realization of my dreams, which for me was just, it was never about, you know, money or fame. It was about um, um, materializing um, visions that I had in the theatrical dimension on stage where characters came to life that uh, interacted. And um, I don't know, it's it kind of a thrilling thing for me. So around the time I met Bob, um, I was also, I stopped writing plays and I started my uh, a punk rock band um, where I was writing, you know, the music and I was performing guitar for. And so I got into the whole punk rock scene as, a, you know, just participating. That was in 1980. 1979, 1980. It was right around the time I met Bob, and so that had its own kind of confidence to it too, just to be, to start a band and to start gigging in a band. So it was the kind of confidence that I think a lot of twenty-somethings come up with, just you know, because they have passions that drive them that are alternative to the mainstream of, um, you know, values of of um, you know making a lot of money and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 
getting married and having kids or, you know, whatever, you know, that meant. And none of that was really, you know, interesting to me at all. Let me ask you about that, because one of one of the many things I think is really fascinating about you and definitely let me encourage folks to read your book, The Eight Circuit Brain navigational strategies for the energetic body, both for your story and for the more, more information about the, the uh, model and practices, is that you seemingly have intentionally kept your ego in check and not sought fame and fortune, where a lot of people in the kind of, in the space of personal growth and development and new models and maps of reality and et cetera, et cetera, uh, play, don't, don't, they play the, the success game um, as we conventionally know it here in the States. And so I'm wondering, like, what, what was about you, your upbringing, your way you thought about yourself, that you thought about the world, which allowed you to kind of keep that in check and not play that game? Um, I don't know, you know, about keeping my ego in check. You know, I've had um, quite a few reality checks to my ego along the okay. way. Okay, good to know. Um, but... The process of making my dreams come true, meaning writing um, for theater and uh, starting a band, that whole process in my 20s uh, definitely developed a healthy and strong ego for me. Uh, however, the consequences of developing a, a strong ego, sometimes it crosses that border between a strong ego into a big ego. And to me, there's a really there's a major difference between a big ego and a strong ego. And, a, and I had to learn that difference. I had to learn um, flexibility because I discovered that um, uh, the big ego is basically having a big idea of myself. Um, that's all it meant. And, and it, it took uh, into my 30s um, to get more excited about... Um, how to get by without having much of any idea about myself, meaning I, I found it more interesting to think about other things and to focus on what I was seeing rather than focus on, you know, who I thought I was. Well, let me just point out how, how unique that really is, um, especially, you know, and we'll get into it as people play around with the higher circuits, the post-survival circuits, six through eight, uh, excuse me, five through eight, um, it seems like a lot of people who start playing that space um, get <laughs> messiah complexes of various sorts. And in reading the, your various works, I, that never really came across, like that you took yourself so seriously. You, you took the model and the practices very seriously to a certain extent but also recognizing it's just a model, but it didn't seem like you really took yourself that seriously in this space, which, you know, as I said, is very unique. Uh, so why don't we take this opportunity to kind of do a, a short dive into the different circuits um, so people can kind of get an under understanding of what we're talking about. We can make walk through the first four survival circuits and then the four post-survival circuits, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll have only done this like the 87th time, but I'm going to see if I can mix and mix it up a bit. <laughs> um, so I think the way I'd like to um, just introduce the first four circuits is through maybe some kind of examples of how uh, people might experience this firsthand. So the first circuit refers to our physical intelligence, which is our capacity 
pretty much to stay healthy and physically healthy specifically and are um, kind of um, it's a kind of almost like a street smart level of intelligence for surviving on the planet is your capacity for survival uh, is pretty much measured through what I call uh, first circuit um, uh, experience and um, second circuit more complex because it refers to the uh, emotional and territorial and status orientation of, of what it means to be a human animal. And I say human animal because uh, animals uh, in all across the, you know, the spectrum of what it means to be an animal, um, you know, there's uh, a, a great focus in hierarchy and pecking order and territoriality. And so human animals also have territorial instincts. They have a strong sense of this is mine that is yours, no, that's not yours, this is mine, territorial disputes, border uh, conflicts, these are all, in a sense, territorial uh, concerns that relate to the second circuit. And so the second circuit experience is basically uh, the extent that you have some sense of what you can actually call your own. And also some sense of, um, let's say, personal boundaries so that you have a sense of, okay, where you leave off and someone else takes on so that you have some respect for the personal territory of others. That becomes its own kind of emotional intelligence to be able to discern, you know, the difference between your turf and someone else's turf. And if you have a problem or a confusion of that, you get into turf wars, you get into arguments and, you know, power struggles and power plays. And that also involves uh, second circuit experiences is where we're at with power and the kind of power um, we're into. And power here is not, you know, a good or a bad thing. It's, it's more about, you know, how, um, you know, you choose to participate as an influence, how you choose to influence others. Um, it's a, in a sense, a definition of your own politics, uh, your own personal politics. Um, circuit three uh, refers to um, uh, intellectual uh, and symbolic intelligence. And we're really talking about how you personally make sense of things, how you uh, interpret your experiences, how you develop maps in your head um, that hopefully points you to the territory of what the maps are symbolizing. Uh, and this is part of the the challenge or the uh, conundrum of, um, you know, the third circuit areas that uh, it's very easy sometimes for, um, especially in these days, you know, of identity politics and so forth, uh, to confuse the map in your head for the territory, to confuse the map in your head, meaning your interpretations, your beliefs for absolute reality and... Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you get into all kinds of um, human stupidity, uh, you know, uh, as a result of that, or, you know, the mistake of confusing any one part for the whole. So, you you know, let's say you go to a restaurant and there's, you know, like 20 items on the menu and you choose one item and, and you decide, oh, I don't like this item. The rest, the whole restaurant sucks. I'm never going back there again. So that would be... Um, you know, an example of confusing, you know, one part for the whole thing, and that becomes its own kind of third circuit, you know, conundrum. 
Um, fourth circuit is called the social, moral, sexual circuit. Uh, the most complex circuit of all because it, in a sense, incorporates the previous three circuits into a highly complex um, uh, arrangement of um, experiences uh, that uh, run the spectrum from, you know, how you, um, you know, uh, make friends, meaning your kind of social or friendship criteria, what determines friendship. Um, it also determines, um, you know, your particular morality or ethics, you know, how you come to uh, determine whether some, something's good or bad or good or evil. Um, and also um, your sexual identity, not necessarily the sexual experience, the orientation. Sexual orientation is much more complex because it, it involves the previous three um, uh, circuits as well. But uh, how you identify in society, whether, okay, I'm bisexual or heterosexual or omnisexual or pans, so that becomes its own kind of uh, social identity. And so social politics, um, the kind of group that you identify with, uh, the kind of religion that you identify with, all of these kinds of experiences um, are, uh, you know, can be included in uh, circuit four. Um, and what's interesting to me is, is that uh, this, just the bottom four can give, being able to differentiate between the four and in real life, it's much more messy. You know, you can't really, you know, the, the lines are much blurrier between the four, but it can give you some sense of differentiation. Um, and if you can do that, uh, it, became, it can become a little easier to discover which circuit you tend to be more fixated in, which circuit you tend to be more kind of treadmilling in or stuck in or where you can't seem to escape territoriality issues or you can't seem to get out of your head or you can't seem to get beyond identifying with one particular group or another and you develop animosity towards opposing groups and so forth and you have a fourth circuit uh, treadmilling issue there let me, let me ask you before you get into the post survival circuits um, could you map these onto developmental psychology like for instance, biosurvival circuit is initiated at a certain stage of development for a, a infant to childhood. Territorial emotionality circuit two is triggered at a certain time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I would say so. Um, but there's also the uh, cultural um, complexity, meaning you know society at large. Mm -hmm. um, carries its own standards and values and definitions for what it means to be uh, a physical person, what it means to be emotional, or what it means to be intellectual, or what is the right way to be a social citizen and so forth, that oftentimes will um, run in conflict and agitation with one's, um, let's say, more innate or true responses to those experiences. Could you say a little bit more about that? Oh, example. yeah. Um, I mean, um, I, the only thing I can do is kind of go by my own experiences. And you, you mentioned um, the word success uh, earlier on. Um, and success is what I would call a more of a second circuit orientation because it 
is really about your experience of winning, you know, or what does it mean to win? What does it mean to lose? What, it mean, what does it mean to succeed? What does it mean to fail? So early on, I discovered, um, and this was probably through, uh, I had an experience um, directing a three-act poem play by E.E. E. Cummings um, in the mid-70s called Him, H-I-M. And I often um, take on poets, uh, different poets, um, for different projects that, that I do, because I, I tend to learn more from poets than even from philosophers or, you know, mm. other kinds of writers. But anyway, I learned through E.E. E. Cummings um, about the subjectivity of success, that actual success, true success was actually subjective. And what that meant to me was that the notion of success was up for grabs, um, that I had uh, the freedom to define success on my own terms. And once I defined those terms, it was basically up to me to live by those terms and become successful on my own terms. And that became much more exciting to me than you know, following the cookie cutter idea of success um, mm-hmm. that is sanctioned by society at large. It makes sense. All right. So what I'm hearing you say then is that each of the first four circuits, to a certain extent, match to developmental psychology. So they are tr- initiated or triggered a certain stage of development for from an infant to an adult. Um, I would also imagine, too, that you can maybe speak shortly or briefly, excuse me, about how it also connects to, uh, psychophysiologically, meaning that you know the, the parts of the brain, for instance, the biosurvival circuit would would be certain aspects of the brain, the territory emotional would be other aspects of the brain or the nervous system at large, because you also talk about, for instance, circuit two, the fight or flight reflex, which yeah. is obviously into um, the nervous system. So I don't know if I'd be the right person to to talk science with you. I'm more mm-hmm. of um, kind of an artist poet kind of person. And so I, um, I leave the science to the scientists and the brain researchers. Um, and even though this model is called the eight circuit brain per se, um, I don't really view it so much as a scientific system where I don't seek, let's say scientific validity or approval or mm-hmm. validation or legitimacy for it. Um, and the reason being is that I've seen too much um, of the results, not just for my own life, but you know, over the last 15 years, teaching it to others and interacting with hundreds of other individuals who've applied the system in various ways, um, and then reading about their results, reading about the, the changes in their life that have occurred as a result of just simply doing the exercises and gaining direct knowledge of these experiences so that they're not just um, you know, reading about it or talking mm-hmm. about it, but, you know, they've actually started living it. Got it. No, that, that makes sense. And, and which what I think you've paved the way for, because you've kind of upgraded and expanded uh, the original model from uh, Timothy Leary, who I would love to hear the story you tell shortly about where he got it from, and that Robert Anton Wilson expanded his, and then you're expanding it further, that I, I would imagine that you're very open to others taking this model in their own kind of scientific or artistic uh, uh, endeavors to you know, expand it even further. And I'm wondering if I have to imagine this is a question for you. Do you have students who have done that actually? 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, I just say good luck. <laughs> good, <Okay. laughs> good, good luck. Uh, it's it's uh, a highly ambitious endeavor and one fraught with peril and all kinds of um, delusional uh, tendencies. Um, one of the common um, misconceptions that I, I have encountered with younger people wanting to take on the model is this uh, kind of compulsion to start comparing it with other models and to try to create this almost grand unified theory of explaining everything. Um, good luck with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm all for, you know, discovering, um, you know, new ways of interpreting it, new ways of uh, putting it to work. Um, but because I, uh, because of the, let's say, the challenges I've encountered personally over the years, um, especially in the area of self-delusion, um, which is, um, I think, pretty common in any um, uh, participation of a kind of uh, exploration of, of um, uh, occult or off the beaten track or alternative uh, kind of um, uh, explanations and interpretations of things. Uh, if you don't have some way of constantly reality checking yourself, if you don't have some way of constantly um, reality checking your perceptions so that you can keep coming back to the knowledge, oh yeah, this is a perception. And the way I like to look at perceptions is that I look at perceptions as gambles. I look at all perceptions as gambles. And I have a kind of a gambling spirit about me. I, I don't, you know, really, um, I'm not really that fond of certitudes, of being completely sure about anything. I, it, mm -hmm. it, I'm not comfortable with it. Actually, that makes me kind of nervous. Um, so I kind of stay away from that. And I like, uh, like I said in, earlier on, um, you know, I, I relate to um, uncertainty as a creative state, uh, as a as a place that I feel at home with. I'm actually comfortable with uncertainty, um, excited by it, and so um, I, I relate to almost any anything I do, whether it's you know the eight circuit brain system or like currently I'm in you know pre-production for my next film. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't even know if it's going to happen. And yet that becomes part of the climate of moving forward. Well, I, I got to say, you, you're, um, you being secure in insecurity, <laughs> the wisdom of insecurity, as Alan Watts would, would, would have said, um, is perfect timing because we obviously live in a very VUCA world. You know, there's a lot of changes going on. A lot of systems and institutions are no longer, if they ever did really serve us, a lot of changes in there. Um, and a lot of people do have a hard time being being in that kind of chaotic space. They prefer much more certainty. So the fact that you are much more comfortable in, in, in that chaotic space is amazing. Um, and uh, I, I would encourage people to you know, not follow your lead as the way you necessarily led your life, but you're an exemplar of someone who has led, you know, follow their own tune and has lived in that chaotic space and happily so. Uh, and every, obviously, everyone has their own their own path to follow, but it's nice to know that people have led the way in their own path and can be models for other people. And let's kind of jump into the next uh, four circuits, which are interesting in and of themselves. But if you could, as you explain what each of the circuits are, 
how they re- how the fifth circuit reflects the first, the sixth, the second, the seventh, the third, the eighth, the fourth. Um, I think that'd be very helpful as well, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so my upper circuit experiences started in uh, in high school. And after my first LSD experience, uh, I was um, 15 years old. Um, I realized uh, two things that um, seemed wrong about this public education system that pretty much changed the course of my life from that point on. And this dovetails into your your question here. Um, One is, is that I realized that high school or what I was learning there, um, overall, nobody was telling me how to think there. I was being taught what to think, but I wasn't taught how to think. And so I was in high school not knowing how to think. And opening up to these higher circuits started stimulating my brain in new areas, and I started learning how to think. The other thing that I learned in high school that was that pretty much everything, all of the subjects except for two, had very little, if anything, to do with how I was going to survive in the world outside of high school. And the only courses that looked to me um, relevant to my post-high school life um, were typing, you know, typewriter typing, because there were no computers back then, um, and theater. So I simply decided to um, get passing grades for everything just to make sure I got out of school. Up until that point, I was almost like a straight A student, but I was just memorizing stuff. I wasn't thinking anymore. Um, And so I graduated and then moved on from there. Um, Of course, typing came in handy because I ended up writing books. And of course, theater uh, became the groundwork and the foundation for my future up to this to this very point. Um, I'm 68 now, so it's been a long time and a long uh, influence from those early days. Now, I don't take LSD anymore. I stopped taking psychedelics back when I was about 23 or so. Um, And so going back now to the eight circuit brain, uh, the upper circuits, uh, five, six, seven, eight, refer to what I call post-survival experience. The first four refer to survival orientation. How do you get along physically? How do you survive physically? How do you survive emotionally? How do you survive intellectually? How do you enter social survival? How do you get along with people? All of these survival orientations that for the most part, people get locked into that that becomes their entire life. So those people that are able to kind of cross over into the dimension of post-survival experience uh, can enter at any point. They don't have to go right into five. They can start with six, seven, or eight. And oftentimes this can happen, um, you know, accidentally or by fate. Um, uh, You know, experiences such as the sudden loss of a loved one, uh, where you lose someone that's near and dear to you, can open up a higher circuit within you where you start perceiving more reality than you knew what to do with. Um, You know, there can be other experiences too, financial windfalls where all of a sudden 
you've got more money than you know what to do with and your survival anxiety has completely disappeared. These kinds of hap this happens when people win the lottery. So there's all kinds of entry into post-survival um, experience that are uh, accidental or happen occurs uh, by fate. Um, so I'm interested in those as well and addressing, you know, situations because they all, all the post-survival levels mapped out five through eight, they all represent very specific shocks to the system. They're traumatic in their own way. And so the way I define the upper circuits is through these four types of shock. Uh, circuit five would be the shock of ecstasy. Now, the shock of ecstasy, uh, the way I'm doing that is the shock of any experience where you are completely alleviated of the suffering caused by survival anxiety. So ecstasy here really refers to almost like an innate natural state when people are not in survival anxiety. They're usually feeling pretty good when they're not feeling anxious. And so there's a number of ways of entering that, that stage. I mean, you can smoke some cannabis and temporarily enter a circuit five situation. Um, you can do physical exercise, uh, hit second wind and enter a point of rapture or ecstasy that way. Um, you can enter circuit five through experiences of um, Zen meditation where you come into um, uh, an expanded experience of being in present time and coming into more uh, present time interaction with others, uh, moves into a higher energy state because you're not just coming from a social um, point where you're judging them for the group that they're part of or you're not um, criticizing them for their you know, mental capacities or whatever, but if you're really being present with other individuals, um, there's a different experience you'll have, um, not only of your own state, but of also of them, to the extent you can be present with someone. So being present, being present in the here and now is uh, probably the simplest way of entering um, circuit five. Um, the sixth circuit is a little diff more difficult can, to get into. Can, in can I ask you a quick question, which is about sure. circuit five, if you don't mind? Yeah. So you said it's a shock, uh, and I'm wondering if you could explain to the listening audience um, if someone accesses Circuit 5 through grace or a certain spiritual practice or however it happens to be, does it clean up the um, Circuit 1 issues, or can it clean up Circuit 1 issues, or do you have to have those cleaned up first before you can access Circuit 5? Oh, no, 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 not at all. Um, see, what happens, the way I'm looking at the lower circuits in relation to the upper circuits is in a very particular way. The lower circuits to me act or can act as, as anchors to um, stabilize and integrate the shocks of the upper circuits. Um, you know, every pothead knows what it's like to get too high and meaning you get so high that... <laughs> I, I had an agreement with by the from the dog there. The dog agrees. Are we are we still on the air? <laughs> that, that's wild. Um, that was the 
um, a circuit two territorial bark from the dog there. So anyway, sometimes, you know, you can get too high in circuit five, whether it's, you know, through meditation, through smoking pot or whatever it is, and your circuit one experience of survival on the planet becomes dispersed and you start forgetting to pay the rent or you, you, you know, you lose your job because you missed the schedule of being there on time and you got fired or so uh, there are um, uh, consequences to over amping or over emphasizing any of the upper circuits and it has to do with uprooting or destabilizing the lower circuit that's connected to that particular upper circuit. And as you mentioned earlier, um, circuit one is the one I think is most directly connected to five and circuit two to six, circuit three to seven and circuit four to eight. And so each of the upper four also, not only are they representing experience of post-survival, but they also refer to certain types of shock and also experiences of destabilizing our survival orientation um, in, in four different ways, you know, with the, you know, the lower four circuits. So, no, just because, you know, you can uh, get high doesn't mean it cleans up the first circuit um, or that you, you can't get high until you have first circuit altogether. Um, uh, there's all kinds of demonstrations of a lot of people getting high and they don't have their survival trip together. Yeah. Got it. No, that's that's very clear. Thank you. All right. So on to circuit six, the neuropsychic trance. Yeah, circuit six um, is very tricky because to um, approach it and engage it consciously, I think there's got to be some capacity to, um, uh, how can I put this, to enter a way of paying attention where you're not immediately assigning labels and meaning to what you're perceiving and instead are participating purely in an action of inner seeing, of just simply seeing without labeling or projecting meaning onto it. And so I've come to understand this process as two different types of attention, the f what I call the first attention and the second attention. Uh, the first attention I'm calling the first attention because I'm thinking it's uh, in predominant use and definition of most people, and I use that phrase most people in a precarious way, um, as, the, as that attention that's basically linked to language and the thinking machine and the automatic assignment of labels and meaning to things, meaning it's the attention that I think is most commonly defined and experienced as attention. I'm paying attention to something, but I'm also labeling it. I'm also assigning meaning to it. So there's more than just attention going on. Second attention would be that awareness linked to presence, to phenomena or energy without the automatic reflex of assigning labels to it or meaning to it. It is simply seeing. And so there's a mystery to that. You're not knowing what you're seeing and yet you're seeing at the same time. And so this is um, 
a center that sometimes um, uh, results in a kind of clairvoyance, which mm-hmm. is a French word for clear seeing. Uh, clairvoyance, of course, of being able to perceive energy fields, perceiving auras around people, sometimes seeing um, events occurring beyond time and space, meaning into the future a little bit, or seeing uh, something like remote viewing experiences that happen uh, in various, you know, PSI experiments in Russia or United States, the CIA, et cetera, remote viewing experiments. These are all uh, sixth center uh, activation experiments. Um, and I think that's what we're, that's where I want to leave this the uh, what I want to say about um, circuit six is this capacity for seeing uh, without uh, assigning labels or meaning to what you're seeing. Uh, let me just ask you to to add one more thing to that too, because with circuit five, you mentioned that um, uh, the negative consequences of it could be, um, that it shocks the first circuit and you can't do activities of daily life as you kind of walk through that a little bit. Um, can you walk through some of the kind of quote negative consequences of circuit six? Yeah. See, what happens um, oftentimes in, you know, when you're participating in that interaction of seeing, uh, seeing without uh, signing labels or meanings, is that you enter also. Um, a kind of consciousness that um, that Robert Anton Wilson referred to as reality selection, mm-hmm. and the bias of reality section is is one of um, relativism of being able to see all these different options, ways of seeing things as equal in value. So you get to see it's a little bit like fence sitting. You see the good and bad of everything. You see the Democrats and the Republican is equal in value, everything being equal in value. And this relativistic um, outlook um, is often exalted and favored uh, amongst many young people uh, using the system or using psychoactive drugs. And it it becomes um, kind of a cool uh, or assumed to be cool um, uh, position to take. to think relativistically. But what happens there in the second circuit is is that the sense of one's own um, sense of uh, territoriality is uh, dismissed. Um, And and, and basically what happens, you know, that that person will tend to then have what's called, uh, let's say, boundary issues where they don't believe in personal boundaries anymore or they don't know where they stand anymore because everything is of equal value so why stand for anything Mm -hmm. and so it's a little bit like well if you don't know where you're standing you may just fall for anything it becomes its own kind of naivete in the political area and what i mean by political area i'm not just talking about right and left or republican democratic but i'm talking about also personal politics in terms of um you know you know, where you're at with your own power and your own influence, well, that's going to come from having a, a, a solid sense of where you stand, your position, you know, where you're coming from and believing in it. And with the relativistic outlook, um, it's it's very tough to believe in anything. In fact, there's almost like a dogma of 
don't believe in anything, uh, it becomes its own belief. Thank you. That's very helpful. You mentioned for circuit five, uh, cannabis, meditation, other such practices can uh, turn it on. What practices besides grace uh, can turn on circuit six? Well, like I said, you know, learning to pay attention, um, you know, without assigning labels or meanings, it, it's its own kind of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, uh, let's say, condone um, psychoactive drugs anymore because I don't take them. So I, I, I don't condone the thing that I don't do. Um, but it can be helpful for others and it can be a, a, an effective um, activation for sure. Uh, psilocybin, mescaline, mm-hmm. um, LSD, uh, etc. Um, and then, you know, there's just different shocks that come to us. And the shock of um, circuit six, I think I would describe as a shock of uncertainty. And especially the experience of escalating uncertainty where you come into a more and more honest sensibility of, I don't know what the fuck is happening. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I am. These kinds of open-ended um, experiences of unknowns uh, can blast open circuit six uh, as well. And this can happen naturally enough. You know, if someone is like between jobs or between relationships or between, let's say, been evicted from their apartment, they're between homes, they're in between personalities. Anytime when you're in a marginal state uh, where the experience of uncertainty is escalating on a daily basis where you either learn to become more at home in unknowns or you just, you know, start acting like a nervous monkey because you don't know how to manage your anxiety. All right. Well, very helpful. Thank you. So we've gone through circuit five and circuit six, uh, circuit seven, the gene mythopoetic trance, which is also, as you say, is related to circuit three. Can you speak a little bit about that one? Yeah. Um, yeah. Circuit seven. Uh, wow. Um, so where's the... Um, Circuit six was more, uh, let's say, uh, linked to uh, the central nervous system and the human brain and the, ser- the nervous system and the human brain, in a sense, becoming aware of itself, the self-aware nervous system, mm-hmm. uh, so that the individual learns to navigate through the world as a nervous system, not just as a physical body. So circuit seven is... is um, uh, it runs much deeper than that because we're really talking about uh, the creator of the nervous system, which is the DNA, the intelligence in the DNA. Um, and so these experiences have come to me through um, uh, shocks of indivisibility, um, where I come into an undeniable uh, sense of unity with all living things, a little Mm -hmm. bit like how the DNA acts as a language connecting all living things. So then when you kind of synchronize with the genetic or DNA intelligence, you also synchronize with the experience of being part of all living things. There's no more separation in a sense between me and everything else. I am part of life as I know it moving through me. And so there's the beginning of a kind of mysticism here. Uh, 
And it's a mysticism that is uh, intimately linked with, um, uh, I think, the uh, direct personal experience of the planet of this earth that we're on as a vastly intelligent and oftentimes compassionate entity that has incarnated as the planet. So no longer, you know, is this view of the earth as this, you know, rock spinning through space. It now becomes Gaia and that there is a living intelligence that has embodied as this planet and we are part of that. We are expressions of that. We are conduits of the planet. We are no longer just individual egos, but we are also um, uh, these conduits interacting with other conduits uh, of, of planet Earth. And so it's through these kinds of um, shocks of indivisibility, I've come to this sense that maybe, maybe just maybe the planet is calling the shots that no matter what's going on surface-wise, we may think, oh, the humans are responsible for this, or this group is responsible for that. And yet there, are, there may be deeper planetary pulses and energies occurring in certain uh, bioregions on the planet that, uh, have, uh, that are expressing the planet's own uh, rhythms and its own processes of transformation that directly impact human politics, that directly impact human experience, that directly impact uh, human outcomes and fates, that the planet may be calling the shots. Now, um, might the uh, microbiome be one example among many of the Earth speaking to individual consciousness through the microbiome to affect behavior? Yeah, that could be another way of putting it. Um, you know, there, there's uh, there's a particular um, ritual uh, that I introduce in my course for people to get just a taste of what this might be, and it's called bump consciousness. And it's basically going out into nature somewhere and just sitting alone and emptying your mind as much as you can and cultivating a kind of internal receptivity and to begin pulling up the energy of the earth below up into your body and then through breathing circulating this earth energy throughout your body until you reach a point of density and this density moves into this experience of simply being a bump on the planet so i call this bump consciousness and, and i think it's really important for, for me to point out to the listening audience that your whole book is not just, here's a really interesting theory, but you're, you lay out tons of different practices to, uh, to access these different states or intelligences, which I think is so important, and I want to highlight that. Uh, before we move on to Circuit 8, could you say how Circuit 7 connects to Circuit 3? You know, circuit <laughs> 3 is the concepts, semantic trance, mental model, mental self. Sense. Oh, sure. Well, you know, um, Circuit 3 you know, representing intellectual intelligence. And intellect by its very nature um, requires duality. It requires the capacity for association and comparative from reductive thinking. This is part of how we solve our uh, survival problems, how we make money and so forth, how we can count uh, and get the right amount when we count. So experiences of um, 
circuit seven indivisibility. It's a shock unity. That kind of profound sense of unity is is uh, it acts as a shock to circuit three intellect because. Uh, in all honesty, into when intellect is faced with the experience of that kind of unity, it freezes up. It kind of gets stunned. There's no duality to interact with. There's no you can't figure it out. There's no um, uh, there's nowhere to move with that. So what can happen, you know, and this is kind of a simplistic way of saying it is is that either you know the intellect goes mad or it becomes enlightened. Um, and uh, it goes mad by, you know, constantly trying to figure something out that is not meant to be figured out, but experienced, or it uh, it bows down, it becomes subservient to the higher intelligence that um, is behind the shock, behind the invisibility, mm-hmm. and learns to adjust the thinking process to serve a more intuitive and a more experienced based approach uh, to gaining knowledge. So knowledge is no longer derived from theory, but um, it's really distilled from a more direct experience. Uh, so it's really a kind of a, a transition from intellect into, towards intuition, mm-hmm. and more specifically learning how to train intellect to serve intuition so it doesn't dominate and tyrannize the intuitive function. And this interaction between the third and the seventh is perhaps one of my, maybe my most favorite interaction because I write screenplays for visionary films. Now, the visions that come to me for the visionary films are not third circuit experiences. They come from seventh circuit interactions with um, what I would call the realm of the muses. These are autonomous archetypes that I interact with. And as crazy making, or as crazy as that may sound, it's a reality to my experience. Subjectively, it, it's real to me. Um, so I have to find ways to write the screenplay that somehow can serve the vision, the initial impressions in such a way um, that doesn't you know, dominate it with overthinking or over-explanation or over-describing, um, but somehow because of my aim as an artist is to provide experiences for the audience. Uh, I don't, I'm not there to school them. I'm not there to educate them. I'm, I'm there to provide experience. And so my films end up being experiences um, through stories, through characters, um, that is really um, a part of my own personal uh, interaction between Third Circuit and Circuit Seven. Before we get into uh, Circuit 8, the quantum dream body, and since you mentioned your films, um, how do they come to you? Do how you, did do you have come a practice? Like, do you have a practice, like, uh, I want to create a new film, and you sit down and do something, or does it come to you other ways? Like, how do the ideas around a film emerge inside of your mind? Um, I don't think they really emerge inside of my mind. Um, my, I've kind of train my mind to become more of um, kind of a radar, okay. more of a recep- receptive vessel, so to speak. Um, and so I basically, I'm, I'm patient and stay receptive. And so I get a call is the way I, okay, probably the most direct way I put it. I feel called or I, I hear a call and I follow the call. 
And I don't know where it's going. I don't know where I'm going, but I, it never doesn't. It doesn't matter because again, uncertainty being for me a creative state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so each of my films uh, have res- come about through following a call, and sometimes that call has involved the need for me to work out certain traumas, certain shocks to my own system that I have not been able to work out in any other way than somehow artistically, um, symbolically. Uh, and so that's kind of been my way of, of um, transforming tragic into magic, tra- transforming uh, very difficult emotions or um, scenarios that I've had to endure in my life uh, into um, you know creative directions. Nice. Well, and that kind of fits nicely with what you're talking about, uh, Robert Anton Wilson. And how he was able to take, you know, the tragic loss of his daughter and turns it from tragic to magic. So you, you, yeah. you are embodying that uh, a way of being in the world. Well, he and I certainly had that in common. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we met in 1979 and I was in his physical company for almost five years on and off. And then we had correspondence for another 10 years. Um, when I was 40, um, I suffered the sudden loss of my own daughter. And that um, launched me into a a 20 plus year era of filmmaking, meaning that that particular shock of impermanence, which is a circuit eight shock, the shock of impermanence, nothing lasts, um, opened up a door um, to perceiving more reality than I knew what to do with, basically. Up until that point, I was working, you know, in the medium of theater, and I was more accustomed to working out my problems and issues through theatrical means. But there's something that happened there in the loss of my daughter that it was too too great, too unfathomable, too all-encompassing. And I knew I needed another medium. I knew I needed something that was more complex and multi-layered. And so... I bought a video camera and just started pointing at this and that. And I started practicing, making little short pieces. And I discovered, okay, maybe this is a direction that I can start, um, you know, channeling, um, you know, some of these visions through. But also, it's a circuit for process. Filmmaking is completely um, teamwork oriented. I don't, it's not like me making films. I'm always making with a group. Mm-hmm. And and so, um Probably 90% of my circuit for experiences, my social experiences, have been through the teamwork processes of creating works for theater and film. Very little of my social experiences are like, you know, hanging out or going to a bar or a pub or something like that and just hanging out with people. I just don't hang out. Um, it's it's always been more in conjunction to these um following these visions and um, by the grace of those who agree to get on the journey with me, um, working working with others. Well, let me just acknowledge your loss of your daughter. Um, and I'm sorry for that. And uh, thank you for bringing it up in the context of, you know, tragic to magic and what it kind of led you to do in terms of your work. Um, you mentioned Circuit 4, Moralistic Social Trance. Um, can you can 
contextualize that with the last of the four post-survival circuits, which is a circuit eight, quantum dream body. Yeah, um, I was awakened to circuit eight experience early on at the age of 23 after a, a very exhausting rehearsal of a mime play, a complete full-length mime play um, that I was um, directing. And it was a kind of exhaustion I hadn't known before. And what it led to was a genuine out-of-body experience that um, pretty much changed the course of my life from then on because it has haunted me ever since in, in, in a number of different ways. Uh, probably the, the least of which wasn't this um, inability to ever identify myself as a physical body. Uh, that, that through the out-of-body out experience, I had a, uh, a very substantial identification with a double, with an energetic body that was independent of my physical body. And it wasn't a dream, because in dreams, when we have dreams, the dream body sort of is an out-of-body experience. When people have dreams, it's a little bit like an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. But this was not a dream. This was actually something different. And I um, bring this up because um, I attribute that experience to the necessity to continue working with groups, and that's the social circuit for process of helping me integrate and anchor that out-of-body experience. And that's happened ever since, because the thing is, before that experience, I was actually developing um, more as a solo performer. I, I wasn't really working with groups as much. I was working with groups sort of as a side project, but more like pushing and promoting myself as a solo performer. But after the outer body experience, that com almost completely went to the wayside, and I realized that I needed to somehow. And I, and I at that point, I had not known anything about the eight circuit brain, so I was not like planning. Oh, I need now to get social because of my eight circuit experience. Um, no, I didn't have a clue. It was just more of an instinct. And so, um, since then, uh, pretty much everything that I've done with the exception of writing books, which is a solitary experience. Um, however, writing books also connects me to many people. So, you know, I have interactions with many people who read my books. So it's in its weird kind of way that's social, but not really because it's more online, more virtual, mm -hmm. which I don't count. I don't believe in quote unquote social media. I don't see that as a social experience. Um, so, I'm, at this point, this little moment here, I'm, I, I think I forgot your question. That's no, fine. I was just asking, because you're talking about uh, Circuit 4, the moralistic social trance, and I just asked you to kind of use that as a way in to start talking about Circuit 8, uh, the quantum dream body trance. And you've, you've talked about consciously as the physical body, kind of functioning uh, non-locally and kind of a dream time. Is that very similar to the aboriginal dream time? Yeah, yeah, it, it is, it is. In fact, um, in the mid-80s, I um, was interviewing and working for a newspaper in Boulder, Colorado, and I was assigned to interview this um, Aborigine um, Koori elder that was touring through Boulder from Australia. 
And that particular meeting uh, entered up as almost a kind of initiatic encounter uh, that was completely unexpected because I came out of that uh, in a sense almost like a changed person because of not so much what he said, uh, but the um, uh, the spiritual uh, connection that I unexpectedly experienced with him and the th- the, what he had presented um, about his work with the dream time uh, inspired in me uh, the creation of a, um, a dream time ritual uh, in the paratheater work that I've been developing since 1977. Um, and that I've also made a, um, a documentary video called Dream Body, Earth Body, uh, which is on YouTube. People can find it. Go Dream Body slash Earth Body. Um, that um, approaches uh, the experience of dreaming in a in a very particular way, meaning that it involves a unique kind of dream recall for movements remembered from dreams. So it, we're not. It's not about m- remembering colors or faces or characters, but specific movements. And it doesn't have to be movements done by a person. It can be a movement of a tree branch blown by the wind, or it could be the movement of an animal crossing the floor. Or So the aim of the dream body ritual, the dream time ritual, um, is to discover, remember, uh, three separate movements. It can be from the same dream or it can be from any dream as long as you can replicate the movement upon awakening. And the process of um, building that ritual is really a kind of ritual choreography of using those three movements by connecting them together to create a movement cycle that you participate in where the three movements become one fluid, larger movement of three different phases. And in participating in the execution of that movement cycle, something uncommon occurs, and that is the uh, the particular memories, emotions, images, and power of the dreaming starts coming through, almost as if the movements themselves were talismans from the dream dimensions, because these are not movements that we made up with our minds. We simply remembered them from the dreams we experienced. Mm -hmm. And so the aim of the dream body movement is for those people who might be interested in uh, coming into a more direct experience of the power of dreaming while fully awake, and physically active, so it's not like a sit-down meditation, or it's not like, you know, yeah, it's, it's not passive, it's, it's active. And so this becomes its own kind of um, circuit aid experience, but it's in the body, it's so kind of strange. It starts with the dream, but then it starts moving into the body at that point. So in, in a way, it's a kind of connection between circuit eight and, and circuit one as well, because of the mm-hmm. physical connection um and the kinetic properties of the ritual you know and i know at the very beginning of this conversation you said you, you you're not a big fan of meta theories or meta models exp- trying to explain everything uh understandably so however well not however and um what's fascinating listening to you talk about the different especially the post four survival circuits 
is that there are so many transpersonal models and maps, spiritual systems that map onto this really well. Yeah. Which is well, really fascinating. Well, speaking of this eighth circuit and its connection to the fourth circuit, one really kind of great example is, um, uh, especially uh, Buddhism, but in particular Tibetan Buddhism, you know, where um, a big part of the meditation, the actual experience is to enter intimacy with void, to enter into um, direct knowledge or gnosis of nothingness or this void space towards, in a sense, becoming indivisible with the void. So you become as an expression of the void. You become an expression of that mystery. Um, and at the very same time, Buddhism is a very social, community-based um, religion. And I, and I know a lot of Buddhists wouldn't even call it a religion because um, uh, it's very different from Muslim or Christianity or Judaism, you know. So, but it, it is its own kind of religion because it has this esoteric practice of sitting, entering intimacy with the void, and then coming into community life, it's a very uh, socially based uh, religion. Unlike Taoism, Taoism is more um, uh, anarchistic, more, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, kind of the, the kind of individuals that are most committed to Taoism tend to be more anarchistic in their temperament and to their spirit. Uh, it's not so much a social religion as as Buddhism is. But Buddhism is, I think, very intelligent. Buddhism, I think, is a very intelligent religion in that it knows, it has a, a great knowledge of how that um, dynamic uh, encounter with the void really needs to be anchored into community life. Right. right. And, and another thing I just want to point out, which is also fascinating about the Eight Circuit brain model is you can look at an individual which we've just really been talking through like how does an individual go through these different circuits and when the circuits are are uh, shocked from higher circuits what's that mean but you can also look at culture or cultures historically through this framework as well and just see what circuits are more prevalent maybe is what maybe is a way of saying it or activated than others and what spiritual systems within those cultures <clears throat> are active in terms of which circuits are being more morally focused on than others. So it can be a kind of a, a way of looking at cultures and history, societies, not just individuals. Would, would, would that be a correct way of kind of understanding it as well? Um, I wouldn't know. It's just simply not in my field of interest. Okay. That sounds good. Um, before we talk about, you know, how people can find your work, your various books, your films, one thing I mentioned earlier on is that um, Timothy Leary popularized the model. But I want you, if you wouldn't mind, just get like 30 seconds into where it came from originally, that he picked it up and ran with it. So I think that that history is interesting as you continue on the process. Um. The origin of the model, I think, is genuinely uh, mysterious. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Leary's uh, book, What Does Woman Want? Uh, there's a preface of the book that explains um, probably the closest description of where and how he discovered uh, the system. 
through uh, this um, individual that Leary refers to as Professor Adams, and I have no idea if that's his actual name. And supposedly he was a Hindu scholar um, at uh, Rutgers University, and that um, he was visiting uh, Timothy Leary uh, in the mid-60s at the Millbrook Estate, where Timothy Leary was um, kind of camped out with a bunch of his friends and students. And, um, uh, and in those walks, uh, uh, supposedly, Leary had um, absorbed what might be called um, uh, an oral transmission of the more esoteric Hindu chakra system. And I say esoteric Hindu chakra system uh, to differentiate it from um, the many books in the New Age uh, community that are you know, describing the Hindu chakra system. So this is a slightly off the beaten path of the more uh, populist uh, chakra system. And that Leary at the time, um, you know, you know, back back in his Harvard days, you know, he was teaching in Harvard. Um, his nickname was Theory Leary, mm -hmm. uh, simply because his peers knew him as this individual who's constantly producing theory after theory after theory. So Leary was a theorist uh, chiefly, and his uh, process of taking that esoteric system and moving it into uh, a more contemporary context by referring to the, at that point, was only seven levels. He didn't add the eighth level for another few years, um, calling them circuits, because at that point he realized that the future was in computers and electronics, and so he wanted to um, bring his theories into a more contemporary cutting edge, and so the circuits were, um, you know, they were named like that. Uh, and this is also, I think, a very good reason to understand the difference between the human chakra system and the eighth circuit brain system. There are certain correlations, um, but the main difference is that the chakra systems uh, are based in the biological endocrine glandular system. It's a biological system uh, based in life processes. And the eighth circuit brain system is a symbolic system um, representing eight different functions of intelligence uh, to be discovered. And the thing I didn't mention that Leary introduced, I think one of his primary contributions was this notion that intelligence could be increased um, through each of the eight circuits by our capacity to mimic uh, the most basic unit of biological intelligence, which is the neuron and the neuron's capacity to absorb, integrate, or store, and transmit information and or energy. So he had this idea that if you were able to absorb, integrate, and transmit the experience of each of the eight circuits, you can move through them more effectively that way. And I thought that was a really brilliant contribution. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate that because it's, it's nice for the listening audience to kind of know the history of where this model came from. So uh, for folks who are interested in learning more about the eight circuit brain navigational strategies for the energetic body, your book, as well as any of your movies and other projects, where can they find more about you? Verticalpool.com.
And that's all your books and all your movies as well? Yeah, yeah, my movies are listed on there. There's a link. Um, uh, the movies that I have made over the last 25 years are now all presented online for free viewing. Um, I don't make money from my movies, um, nor do I make money from my books. They go to other sources. Uh, but you can find pretty much, I would say, probably more about me than in my work than you want to know um, at verticalpool.com. And you'll also find a link there to my um, uh, paratheatrical research. Fantastic. Well, I definitely appreciate your time. This is very exciting for me because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, this is a model that I first discovered in the late 90s. And it's uh, very exciting to have this conversation with you to kind of unpack it. And let me encourage our listening audience to check out your books, check out your movies, and check you out. And I appreciate your time. Thanks for letting me check you out. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Take care. Bye.